even though I'm not a millennial, I'm definitely a Gen X, I jumped around a lot. And I think that's because I really enjoy the learning curve. I had enormous imposter syndrome. I had people that were working for me that were older than me. I had someone working for me who wanted my job, so thought I was just the worst person ever. There were so many times where I was like, I can't do this. I have to fake it. (laughs) And the whole fake it till you make it thing, it's real. Life is change. Growth is optional. Choose wisely. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Holloway, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. Hello, everyone. Today we have another intrapreneur, but one who also has her own side hustle and can speak to both sides of the yay type fence. Justine Bloom is an absolute powerhouse and fellow Aussie, but now lives in the Big Apple, as you may hear every now and then in her slightly New York accent, and is doing incredible things in the world of digital marketing and tech. Justine has an incredible CV to her name and is currently right-hand woman to Gary Vaynerchuk, a.k.a. Gary V, and is the first Chief Strategy Officer of VaynerMedia since 2017, a.k.a. Dream Job. I'm assuming you've heard of Gary V, but if not, he was an early investor in Facebook, Snapchat, Venmo and Uber, and is the CEO of VaynerMedia and VaynerX. Just come out from under the rock you've been living under and give him a Google. (laughs) Prior to that, Justine served as Executive Vice President, Head of Strategy and Innovation at number one global media network, Carrot, from December of 2014. Before her move to the Big Apple, she was a Senior Brand Strategist Consultant for the Brand Institute of Australia, Head of Client Strategy for the Victoria Region for Nine Entertainment, and Business Strategist at Jack Morton Worldwide, as well as founding and serving as CEO of The Village Agency, a network of independently successful marketing and communications experts. If that weren't enough, Justine is also the founder, author, and publisher of the Mindful series and a transformation coach empowering mindful professionals and well-being brands to thrive. Across two decades as a strategist inside frenetic media advertising and agency environments in Australia, London, and New York, she developed her approach to mindfulness and reflection as a means to unlocking her best potential and self. Justine is a sought-after speaker delivering TED Talks, speaking at Walt Disney's Media Summit, and many more. She's also a very close friend of one of my own very close friends, Nat Warner of Green Street Juice, so is automatically a legend. Introducing Justine. Hello, Justine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to chat to you. Please do share where you're joining us from, not just in New York, but your super secret location. From my closet. (laughs) where I have the best audio. Um, I don't know. It's something about my closet. I get great audio in here. (laughs) Never had someone join from their closet before. Well, just think of like Carrie Bradshaw's closet. That's kind of what my closet looks like. Oh, that's goals. Maybe not as many amazing clothes. But yeah, it's about that size. (laughs) Well, that's my dream. So obviously you are doing amazing things. So I'd love to start with asking everyone what the most down to earth thing is about them, because I think the digital world and our online personas can create a really glossy surface, but that stops the real relatable stuff coming out. So just to break the ice, what is something superhuman about you? Well, I think you mean very human because superhuman, I'm definitely not. Um, (laughs) (laughs) see, I beg to differ as you guys will hear in this episode. I think just that I have the same amount of doubts and insecurities as everybody else. And I think I second guess myself. I spend a lot of time in my head and that's partly my job, but also I think, uh, the curse of maybe being a female as well, like the overthinking of things. And I've definitely had to learn over the years ways of channeling that energy in a really positive way rather than letting my self-talk get in the way of what, what I need to do or what I can do or what I'm um, able to, to be. I think 
most people I think can relate to that, um, but it's something that I don't think enough women actually talk about. Oh, absolutely. There's a whole segment. In fact, part of the reason why I started this podcast was to look at that side of things. So, you know, the first segment is called Way to Yay. So how you got to where you are, to your life of yay, the whole journey to get there. But then there's also a whole section on Nay to Yay, which is all about that stuff about self-doubt and overthinking and being in our heads too much, which I know all about. And, you know, I started off in mergers and acquisitions. So then there's also gender differences and biological differences in our journeys to add to that whole mix and the tendencies to overthink, you know, really played out in that environment. So I definitely want to come back to that. And I think we can all identify with what you're saying, you know, more than we realize. But just to start off with your way TA, can you take us back to the very beginning and tell us about young Justine? Obviously, you're Australian and now you're in New York, but where did you grow up? Were you cool at school? Did you always know what you wanted to do in life? Sure. Um, I definitely was not cool at school. Uh, <laughs> I grew up between Sydney and Brisbane, actually. So was born in Sydney, but spent um, some of my primary school years in Brisbane. And then we moved back to Sydney and I um, went through high school in Sydney. Uh, so even though I call myself a Melbourne girl because I moved there in my early 20s and definitely Melbourne is home, I've kind of lived all over the map. So in school, I was crazy thin and like athletic, but in a really geeky, lanky way. Like I was a, a runner. I played the clarinet. I was a bit of a math geek. I was the school captain of my primary school oh. and I got a scholarship <laughs> for musical achievement in primary school. So I was a bit of a, a do-gooder, I would say. And so I don't think I was at all cool. And then in high school, I went to an all-girls school where it was super competitive and not a lot of sports. So I kind of made it my mission to try to really promote school sport. And um, that was the thing that I won an award for, <laughs> was I think persisting against the academics and um, making sure that everybody felt a little bit more well-rounded. But yeah, I was always, I think the one thing that stands out for me is being in high school was I was just incredibly thin and I got picked on for that. And um, it's not, I didn't have an eating disorder or anything, but it was just my metabolism was crazy. And it was definitely a formative part of my high school experience was being different, but being different in such a way that people thought it was almost good that I was that way, but the way that they would express it was in this really um, like putting me down kind of way to probably make themselves feel better. But um, it definitely had an impact on how I think about women and, and their shape and being comfortable in their skin and uh, and promoting that no matter what you look like. Yeah, absolutely. I was quite similar when I was younger in having always been quite slender. And it's funny, the things that make you different when you're younger are often the things that you end up loving later on. Yeah. <laughs> and we change, right? So I don't look like that anymore. But it's so interesting to like reflect on just how, how cruel kids can be to each other, but how that really builds resilience and a way of thinking about yourself and others if you, if you are capable of thinking about that in an enlightened way. I think it does uh, set you up for the future in a, in a really interesting way. Yeah, definitely. It's funny. This is going to be a mass generalization, but you know, when you look back at primary school and there were the super cool kids, but then there were the nerd burgers like us and you know, I, I'm adopted. So I was like the only Asian at the school and actually a little bit oblivious to it at the time, which is kind of good. But often when you look back at the popular kids now, they tend not to be the ones who have gone on and, you know, built that resilience that you kind of need to get out in the real world. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's um, it's just interesting how school can be like this little bubble for some people and, in, and for others it kind of earns them their stripes that makes them excel in the world. And, uh, you know, really the truth comes to pass one way or the other. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you started your career in Australian media. How did that begin for you? Did you know in school what you wanted to do or did you kind of just get started because you wanted to figure out as you went along, which is what most of us do? <laughs> yeah, I definitely had no idea. I was in a, like I said, an all-girls school. It was also a selective high school. So there's an entrance exam and there that comes with all kinds of expectations around what you will do with your life and that you will go to university. And I was pulled into the principal's office 
quite a few times because I didn't want to go to university and they found that wholly unacceptable. Um, but the reality was is I, I don't learn very well in classroom environments. I'm, I'm just a hands-on learner and I really just wanted to um, reduce the amount of time that I had to be in this very academic world and start learning by doing. So I went to a one-year kind of intense um, business college, uh, which was 8.30 to 5.30 every day. So it was kind of like a job and it was very different to the uni lives that my friends were having. Wow. Um, <laughs> very but, different to mine. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I was out in a year and I had my first job and I, I don't think I put this on my CV, but I had like six months in PR and very quickly worked out that I did not want to be in PR. And then I, I actually thought I wanted to be in music. I want, I, music was a big part of my life, both classical, jazz, as well as just I loved going to live music. So I applied for a ton of jobs in all these different music-related organizations and actually got two jobs offered to me at the same time. One was in PR, um, was at Virgin Records, and then the other one was in media um, as like the label was advertising assistant, but it was kind of like do everything um, at Rolling Stone magazine. And oh, I wow. was like, well, what should I do? And, you know, I was so young. I thought, well, that's PR and like the hours are going to be crazy and I'm probably going to be asked to go buy Coke for the Smashing Pumpkins at 3 a.m. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <and> Glamorous. <laughs> or... I could go do this job, which is a bit more nine to five. It felt like it was this small team that was really family oriented um, in the way that they worked together. And uh, I still had the music, but I also was really interested in writing and I had the opportunity to do some of that. And it was paying a whole $2,000 a year more. I think my salary was $23,000 a year, which kind of blows my mind right now. Is that legal? <laughs> I know. I I think I I lived in a studio apartment. I had two cats. I don't know how I fed them, but I lived on like two minute noodles. I think <laughs> <laughs> living the dream. <laughs> yes, but you know, I got to go to a lot of uh, gigs for free and meet lots of awesome people. But really rounded my skills in trying all sorts of things: advertising, writing, reviewing editorial, you know, I was the gopher. I did everything. <laughs> what an experience though. Yeah, it was really, really fascinating to see essentially a staff, full-time staff of five people. Um, they obviously had freelancers, but there was only five people that put that magazine out every month, whereas Rolling Stone in the US is huge. And I mean, it comes out weekly, but also it's just an, an enormous organization. Maybe not now, but it was at the time. And it was incredible how when you have five people who are very diverse in their skill sets, but they all know what they're there to do, how quickly something like that can come together and the quality that comes together when there's respect for what everybody else is bringing to the table. I think that was one of the first lessons that I had that went on to become a big part of how I've built teams and how I've led um, is really respecting diversity of skill sets and, and how that comes together to be greater than the sum of its parts. Absolutely. That's such a big thing that always surprises me, you know, to hear just how small teams often are behind these big companies and, you know, that seem so large on the outside. And I think, you know, when when businesses are achieving such big things, you get this idea that you need a huge team of people and an office and a PR person. But really, if you've got the right skill division between a few key people, you can actually achieve all the same things on a smaller budget with a smaller amount of people and not go broke on wages. Exactly. So what came after that? You ended up having some other amazing roles with, you know, Nine Entertainment and how did that all develop from there? Yeah, um, I mean, it's a long magical mystery tour that could take an entire podcast, but um, <laughs> I was, I think, even though I'm not a millennial, I'm definitely a Gen X, I jumped around a lot. And I think that's because I really enjoy the learning curve and it's, I'm a hands-on learner. So once I feel like I'm no longer learning, I tend to like move on and try something new. So I moved around a lot and the first decade of my career was pretty much on the media side and that was um, incredible, uh, huge learning because digital really became a thing um, early in my career and that became the undercurrent 
uh, to the rest of my career. It was um, partially, I think, also that I don't stick very well to my swim lane. I like to think about everything as a big picture. So no matter where I was, I was always thinking about partnerships we could have and how we could build a better strategy for a client um, by um, being in partnership with others. So came a point where I wanted to do more of that and I felt like I could only do that if I switched um, to agency. So my first agency role was at Jack Morton and that was where I learned, I think really earned my stripes as a strategist. I think I had been a strategist on the media side, but by stealth, not necessarily by design. And it wasn't until I was at Jack Morton where I got to learn from like these incredible strategists and work with these fucking unbelievable creative directors, just quietly, <laughs> um, who, who really pushed me to articulate my thinking in a new way. And I think the partnership and the, and the backwards and forwards that I had with these people helped me to really grow. And Jack Morton's is an experiential agency as well. And I think getting to understand brand experience and how you build brands through an experience has become such a formative part of how I um, approach my work. So it was a a really great time. Um, But then uh, the global financial crisis happened or as we call, yeah, as we call it in, in Australia, the GFC. And when I got to New York and I started saying the GFC, they're like, the what? <laughs> really? Yeah, they don't call it that here. They call it the global financial crisis. But that didn't really affect Australia as much, if you remember. It was, yes, we were a yeah. little bit sheltered from it. Um, but Jack Morton's a globally held company and we, we were getting a directive um, from senior people that less people was what we needed to do even though we had the work so I wasn't necessarily let go at that time but I watched a number of really amazing people um, be let go and then hired back as freelancers and I was like that's insane because being a freelancer is um, more lucrative more expensive for the company and you're a free agent like you can go work wherever and whenever you like Hello. so that was yeah that was like the turning point where I went there's kind of something there there's an opportunity and I feel like it's time for me to go out on my own and do my own thing so there was this like confluence of events that led to the launch of the village which was the agency uh, that I ran for five years before moving to New York um, that was I wanted to work for myself I didn't necessarily want the headache or the pressure of having employees because I thought I would feel so responsible for their life and well-being that the stress would kill me. So I <laughs> said, well, we're all freelance, like let's all be independent and you can work for other people if things are slow, but wouldn't it be great if we could all come together with our very diverse skill sets around these awesome projects and just have some fun together? And that was where the notion of the village came from. And at the same time, um, Nine Entertainment Co., who I had previously worked for in a different format, they called me and said, actually, we'd really love your help. So I had this great opportunity to consult with them um, and have a steady income and build this business on the side, which then ended up becoming my full-time role. Uh, And I did do um, some consulting work on the side, but ultimately all of my energy was around building the village. And it was a fantastic experience. I learned so much about what it takes to run a business, what it takes to build a culture, particularly virtually with people who are not your employees, but you still want culture because culture is how great work gets done. And it was a little bit of a baptism by fire, but it was the perfect time for me uh, because my son was just starting school and I really wanted the flexibility to be able to pick him up from Um, school at three o'clock and drop him off and not have him in sort of before and after school care. So the village afforded me like so many things. And I once was actually asked to speak as a disruptive entrepreneur at um, at Creative 3 conference in Brisbane, where I was on stage with these people who were like, had these world domination businesses. And I got up there and I was like, so I'm not one of them. I'm a lifestyle (laughs) business. I do this so I can pick my son up from school. And it was interesting. So refreshing though. Yeah, well, it really resonated with a lot of people. I had so many people come up to me after that talk and 
well, like it's so nice to hear someone whose business is really about balance and it's it's not about wanting to take over the world. It's about get, wanting to have the lifestyle that you want and the freedom that you want and that's how you facilitate it. So it was a, yeah, it was a really great experience, but ultimately one that kind of came to an expiration in so far as I wanted to move to New York. So <laughs> I wound it up and made a big plan to to move here about four years ago. I think your story is so, so interesting because it has been so fluid and so openly dynamic to the fact that at different stages in your life, you need different things. And what I love hearing is you've never plateaued, whereas I think people fall into comfort or not necessarily comfort, but just routine. But they say, okay, you know, this is my jam forever without questioning if they're still you know, learning, which is what I fell into before I jumped ship. So it's so refreshing to know that you're not stuck in one thing or one industry. You can just decide, I'm going to go freelance, then take a step further and be a founder and CEO. And then, oh, no, actually, I'll close this business and go into a role that's amazing. And, you know, that's a really ballsy decision. And I think there's a lot of ego in stepping out and starting your own thing, but then closing it up when the time is right. That's very hard to do when you've spent all your time building so much culture and yeah, I just love hearing how open you are to just going with what works. And it's also on purpose and it's not without direction. I love how proactive you are. Yeah. My coach is actually trying to get me to stop being in action all of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's can... not good for the adrenals. <laughs> no, it's definitely not good for my adrenals. <laughs> so can you tell us, after you closed the village and took the big jump to New York, you not only made a transition to a completely different culture and working environment, and it's funny, I always used to think of the US and Australia as the same because, you know, we have the same language, we like the same pop culture, but when it comes to actually doing business over there, I was so surprised how different it is culturally and yeah, you know, you also went from running your own show to back into an executive role with a boss. And what was that like? Even just adapting to the different flexibility of your time and then moving into a company where a team actually gets to take care of all the stuff that you're not good at and you get to focus on your actual skills instead of doing all the roles. That sounds really amazing to me right now. <laughs> what what was that like? Yeah, I mean, some of your observations are, are dead on. Like, <laughs> I was really, really fortunate insofar as I found a company, not just a company, but a boss that was so supportive of me being empowered and autonomous, but also he was very, very supportive, which I think coming from a founding position where, you know, the buck stops with you, you make all the decisions, you you can be collaborative with your team, but ultimately you make the final call. And then going into a corporate environment again, particularly in corporate America, I had no idea what that was going to be like. And I was, I was very nervous about whether I was going to like it. And I think, and I've told him this, um, <laughs> he, know, he knows my, my first boss uh, in New York, his name's Michael Epstein. And I said to him one day, I was like, I feel like I won the boss lottery. <laughs> and, and he was, um, he was so stoked with that. Uh, but it really was because he's a, a a big advocate and supporter of um, women in business and in leadership roles. He was very empowering for me to make my decisions. Um, he would advocate for me up to his bosses and so forth. Uh, so it was really like that dream scenario where it was fairly easy to transition. I just felt like almost like one of my board of advisors that I used to have for the village had just become my boss kind of thing. Oh, and amazing. Yeah, so that was great. I think that was less the transition for me and more New York was just the transition. Like the pace of everything in New York is so crazy. And I mean, when I visited here and I had been so many times as a tourist and had always said, oh, I want to do a stint in New York. And people would say, why? And I'm like, I don't know. There's just this energy about the place. After living here, I was like, oh, wait, that energy is just stressed people. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's just running to their next thing. Like everybody is at pace all of the time. So it was a huge adjustment for me in going from 
a level of flexibility where even though I worked really hard, I worked at my own pace, I worked on my own time. That was that was the biggest adjustment for me um, coming here. And that was less the company that I worked for and more just the state of New York. Yes. And the way that <laughs> things roll here. It's funny. One of my best friends was a management consultant over in New York and she moved in-house at a big fashion brand and had that same thing. You know, New York is, it's so magnetic and exciting. It's a powerhouse city where dreams are made and so infectiously alive and then when she got there you know there was that magic at the start but then she just burnt herself into the ground it just never stops it's so glossy from the outside but everything is hard and and it's dirty when you get there it's hard to get good food there's pollution it's just so densely populated yeah I had a friend come recently who's been here many many times and it was almost like the sheen had come off New York for him and he said wow this place is actually really dirty <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's really dirty. <laughs> Doesn't look like that in the movies. So what was your role over there? You had an executive role at Carrot, is yeah. that right? What was Carrot? Yeah, so Carrot is part of the Dentsu Aegis Network, which is one of the big holding companies um, in media, marketing and advertising. And Kara is uh, a media planner and buyer in that mix. So there was no creative and this was a, like a big step for me because I'd I had never really wanted to work in a media-only agency, even though I had worked on the media owner side for a decade of my career. I love the creativity. And so the only reason I really took this job is that the role was literally described to me as we want you to make our plans more innovative and more creative. So I was like, great, I can do that. Um, (laughs) And that was head of strategy and innovation. Is that right? Correct. Yes. And that meant that I arrived, there was no like established team. I was really there to build it. So there was a handful of people that had been kind of plucked from different parts of the business and said, here you go, here's the start of a team. And really it was then up to me to say, well, what was this team's remit going to be? What was our vision going to be? Who needed to be in it? Um, And so built that from scratch and really tried to think about it as less a department, but more about how are we going to imbue this notion of innovation and a different way of thinking about strategy for media throughout the whole organization. So I really took it as a culture challenge, not just a building a department challenge. Yeah. And I think one of the things that sounds so silly when you're familiar with it, but that if you haven't worked in it seems such a mystery is creative and innovation and any titles of jobs that relate to strategy. You know, I don't actually think people know what that means. Everybody has strategy in their title. (laughs) So yeah, like day to day, what does that actually mean? Is it literally looking to the future and deciding overall what the strategy of where the business is going to go or sort of what does that involve? It can be. It depends on the client. But ultimately, the way I sort of describe strategy is that you need to understand the business problem, not just what we're trying to do from a marketing standpoint, and then understand the role that marketing plays in order to achieve that. So there's a lot of um, different analogies for strategy, but really it's about collecting a lot of dots, a lot of pieces of information Um, And it's a little bit like a detective. So if you've watched Homeland, (laughs) you know, Claire Dane's character in Homeland is known for her slightly neurotic, but this is literally how it works. Putting all of those clues and all of these things that she was collecting up on a wall and like putting pieces of string between them to try to connect the pieces of information she was collecting. And that's really what is how a strategist thinks. They are collecting all the information that they think might be informative to how to crack whatever the problem is. And the problem being, we have this business objective, we need to get from A to B, how are we going to do that? And then you are collecting as much information and that's from data, it's from research, it's from speaking to people, it's from observing humans in the wild. And you are putting those pieces together into um, ideally a really succinct way of explaining how to get from A to B. So it's inherently a problem-solving occupation. I think we're all problem solvers, but this is like its unique thing is is to say this is the problem and here is the blueprint or the pathway to get there. 
That is the best explanation I've heard of a strategy role before. (laughs) I think if you haven't been around it, you can wonder what it means. And I've never understood if it, it sits more under, you know, the financial side of the business or more under marketing and creative, but that just really ties them all together. Yeah, the the good ones do. And I think you can find strategists like the what you describe in consultancies like Accenture and they will have those full-on business strategists that are really not focused on brand but are more focused on business and finance and economy and all of that. But we like to take a little bit of that and not um, necessarily let us let it hold us back but put it in context for how a brand should create an experience for someone or communicate with them or so on and so forth. (laughs) Yeah, so interesting. And so next up, you ended up working with Gary V as a chief strategy officer. And now that we've explained what that means, we know what that actually involves. So how did an opportunity like that come about? Uh, Super funny story. Um, I, (laughs) I think I feel like Gary is full of these little quips and interesting stories. He does like to tell this one though. So I was kind of headhunted and I wasn't really sure that I wanted to work for someone like Gary because I, my impression of him was only through his content. And I think when you only see that side of Gary, he can be pretty polarizing and he, he would put hand on heart and admit that that's almost by design. He's, he's just a super binary human. And I think that's part of his appeal is there's like, there's no fluff. There's none of this garbage in the middle playing it safe. It's just like, it's on or it's off. And I was unsure. And I just kept being, being told, just meet him. You will understand when you meet him. I was like, okay, I need (laughs) to do it soon because I was actually pretty close to being promoted at my job. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, if this change was going to happen, that I did so in a respectful, timely fashion. And so what that meant was we had this really super bizarre left of field um, interview in the back of a car. So <laughs> um, Gary was speaking at a, at a college up in Harlem. And the only time that he could afford me is the car ride back from this speech down to the office. So his assistant called me and he was like, look, this is really left of field, but would you be up for this. And I was like, okay, sure. And so you got to roll with it. <laughs> I know. I went up to Harlem. I listened to the sort of back half of his speech and then watched him get mauled by these college students. And I was following him down the corridor because he was going out to the car. And I was like, I don't know how to get through this maelstrom of humans that are trying to get selfies with him and asking questions. And in the back of my mind, I was like, what am I getting into? Uh, <laughs> but, but we we got in the back of this car with, as anyone that knows Gary, he goes everywhere with a uh, camera crew. So his camera guy was sitting next to me. I'm like literally in the middle seat next to Gary and someone else was in the front seat. And we had this chat on the way back to the office and that was how I got hired. Like it's a super strange story. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome, though. I kind of wouldn't expect anything less from Gary. And yeah, so what's your role with him now? And just quickly, guys, if you haven't heard of Gary at the rock that you're living under, (laughs) Gary V is basically one of the leading tech entrepreneurs in the world. Just Google him. He's CEO of VaynerMedia. There's X Group. There's Everything. His last name is Vaynerchuk, obviously. He was an early investor in Facebook, Snapchat, Venmo, Uber, you know, one of those. (laughs) What an exciting person to be around. Yeah. And I must say, during that conversation, like everyone that said to me, oh, you just have to meet him. He's very different when he's not being cut and sliced together by his team into like an, a webisode. Um, <laughs> and he, he really is like he is the intensity with which he listens is really extraordinary. Like you would expect maybe he might be on his phone or he might be super distracted, but he is like 
zeroed in on you and he's only listening to you and it's kind of this with the same intensity as you might expect from Gary Vee but when you've got that level of intensity listening to you and you feel like you're just the only person in the room it's uh, that's I think where he gets his insane level of empathy Mm. and his ability to read people to read situations he's very intuitive and he's always like a thousand steps ahead and that's because he can take in so much information in such a short period of time, but he, I like I would actually love to know how his brain works. But he's, <laughs> um, he's yeah, very unique, very inspiring, and pushes people to think very, very differently. So I have definitely grown as a strategist and also as a leader, as you would being in partnership with him, but in ways that I never would have anticipated. So. It's been uh, a remarkable journey, but one that he's definitely the same as my previous boss. He's very empowering, has given me runway to do things the way that I felt they needed to be done. He's been very open to debating ideas and getting to a great way of a way great way forward just by debating and discussing. Mm. And that's all you can really ask from someone who you would think is probably very finite and definitive about what he wants and when he wants it, but he is very malleable and very, very focused on culture and very, very focused on the human side of the business. Uh, He talks about growing, he wants to grow the biggest business based on kindness. And when you- Really? Yeah. When you hear that, you're kind of like, oh, you would never pick that. But when you hear it and then you experience him- you realize that's exactly what he's trying to do. He's not trying to build this empire by tearing other people down. In fact, he just wants to keep building based on kindness and he will have the biggest, tallest empire based on that in the end. And no one will be able to kind of shoot him down and say, well, he did this to me because he just doesn't do that. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I think, you know, one of the things I'm hearing is that if you can find dream bosses like that whose values align with something you respect and aspire to and who give you the flexibility and trust in your skills and invest in what you want and allow you all these growth opportunities, it's actually something that you do lack in a founder role. You know, you you grow in other ways, obviously, but not necessarily under guidance of close relationships with a boss, which I find fascinating because you've actually seen both sides of that now. You've run your own show and then had two roles with bosses who still allow you that flexibility and those comprehensive learning opportunities through their support and facilitation. Yeah, I think it's two sides of, of a coin. I think I love being my own boss and I get a completely different set of learnings that way. Mm. But you're right. I think it's my biggest takeaway is if I was to be my own boss again, I would make sure that I have incredible mentorship Mm. and pay people to be on my board. Like my board of advisors was unpaid and it was more just like a friendly thing. I will literally pay people to be on my board so that they can be that person who pushes back at me and points out where I might be going wrong. Uh, I think as a founder, it's it's kind of glamorous or romantic to say, oh, I don't need to deal with that anymore. Like I can be my own boss. <laughs> but <laughs> but then you need think, that accountability to Yeah, you, to miss, out. yeah. you miss out. Yeah. So in your chief strategy officer role now, is that for Gary Vee's personal brand or is it in one of the Vayner companies or for all, across all of them? Uh, just Vayner Media. So Vayner Media is the largest organization in Vayner X. Uh, there's 800 plus people that work at VaynerMedia and it's a full service agency. So that's everything from creative, media, strategy, insights, production, the whole shebang. We have e-commerce, we have all these different arms and legs. So it's that business that I am primarily focused on. And I can imagine working in an organization like that and in New York and with Gary Vee that there are some very glamorous moments. So what are some of the coolest things you've done along the way? In New York, I think there's definitely people that you have access to that you don't have access to anywhere else. I tend to take it somewhat for granted, I think, which is terrible, but um, I think because I've, I spent a lot of time in television networks in Australia and I've never been someone to really look at celebrities and be like, oh, you're like this superhuman that's mm. above me. I've mm. always just seen them as like another human. So it's actually, <laughs> it's actually interesting how people have had to point out to me like, 
oh my gosh, you met this person. And I'm like, <laughs> oh yeah, I guess that's kind of cool. Um, so <laughs> I think, you know, there's been times where you just, you run into Sarah Jessica Parker in the coffee shop. That oh, sure. does happen. <laughs> um, there's also, I think, I mean, I was at a, a luncheon with the Australian consulate here for Australia Day uh, on Friday. We did it a week early because a lot of people go on conferences next week. There's a, a conference called Davos that a lot of people are going to. So I went there and, you know, there were quite a few very notable Australians in the room. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a center where there are people from film, there are people from business. You have access to like the Facebooks and the Twitters that in on a level that you don't get when you're in Australia. The one thing I will say though that I found super interesting is Australia is just more innovative than New York. And that sounds really bizarre. I actually, I know what you mean. I've had similar revelations through trying to do business in both and have been extraordinarily surprised by that. Yeah, there's there's a level of risk aversion here that I was not anticipating when I first moved here. And maybe it's because, well, actually one of the things I put it down to is it's at-will employment here. Like you don't have like the three strikes and you're out type rule here. Mm. You can lose your job tomorrow and that's completely legal. Mm. And I think that breeds a sort of covering your ass mentality that you don't have in Australia because I think there's a little bit more of a cushion around you and you can take a few more risks. So it's been interesting to observe that, I think, as well. I think the cultural differences in business are much greater than you ever expect before you jump into, you know, a complete other market. And they always surprise me, but I find them so interesting. Like just the small little things that can change the whole output of a market because of the way they see things. Yeah, the other one that was really interesting because I wanted to build this very diverse team when I got here and it took me a long time to figure out how to find those people because a lot of people leave college and just move up rather than zigzag. Mm. And the best strategists have had like a diversity of experience, not just in being in different companies, but they've had multiple varied experiences and types of roles that they have done, or they've got a very eclectic out of work interest set. Mm. And I got to experience actually in high school, my son's in high school, how much the education system actually tries to zero you in on a particular subject because then you're more likely to get a scholarship for it to college. Mm. Or if you don't get a scholarship, you come out of college with this huge debt. So you just want to earn as much money as possible, as quickly as possible to pay it off. So you just focus on getting promoted rather than building a breadth of experience. Mm, That's fascinating. Yeah, it really, I mean, I've now found my ways of finding these wonderful humans who have zigged when others have zagged and (laughs) but it's it took me a while and at first I was like wow people are really linear yeah but yeah it's it I find this sort of stuff really fascinating because it is it's society and culture that's what creates it I love that you're a zigzagger reading your story I was just like wow that's amazing (laughs) or crazy (laughs) but you know the crazies are the ones who change the world (laughs) I like to think so and one of the other interesting things that has come out of your zigzagging and, and your big move from Australia to the crazy city that is New York is just the burnout that can happen as a high achiever like yourself. It has to be, you know, actively combated or you just won't survive. So you're now the founder and CEO of a new project called the Mindful Series, which is becoming, I hope, a much more prominent issue in society. And we're seeing lots of, you know, meditation studios and and mindfulness studios pop up in New York, which is so important. So tell us about that. I I was just so excited to read about it. And you often do see these corporate high flyers not having anything in their lives to sort of cancel that part out of their life. And I worry for them so much, you know, what's in their future, but I love that you're onto it already. <laughs> yeah, I I think having a side hustle in New York feels like a prerequisite. <laughs> uh, it started, I've always journaled, um, but more for my personal life because like I said, I'm like in my head all of the time and it is one of the the practices that helps me to get that out of my head and make sense of what my mind is doing in order to calm the crazy and do good stuff with that. So that's been my personal life for like since I was a teenager. And it wasn't until I was in New York 
where the pace, as I mentioned, was just so nuts that I found it really difficult to find time to think. And thinking for me is not a, oh, I can just do it on the subway. Like I have to be in in a mindset and generally in some quiet or at least some soft music to stare out the window and not necessarily be on my devices trying to build a presentation, but step Mm. away from the problem for a little while and just let it ruminate and collect more dots because if you don't collect more dots, then you can't connect them. And I found that the pace here, that was the biggest adjustment as I felt like, wait, I came here to do great strategy work and I just feel like I can't think. And that became the impetus for starting to apply some of the journaling techniques that I used to use for my personal life at, at the office and putting like closing my laptop, stepping away from my devices and just going and scribbling in my notebook became an outlet for me to try to get some of that think time. I did this for a couple of years before I really thought about turning it into a product but when I was, uh, I was interviewed actually on a podcast for a mindful journaling app and it kind of made me realize actually I'm, I do this as part of my work and I should probably turn it into something and see if other people want to do it as well. So it took me a year to write um, the content for it. It's not a productivity planner. Like there's no checklists, there's no task lists, there's no like writing down your appointments. And that's probably like the extreme. I think some people are like, oh, I wish it had this. But yeah. but I really wanted, <laughs> I wanted it to be a take 15, 20 minutes out of your day and just slow down, notice more, be more curious, reflect a little bit and just see what that brings up for you and if it helps the way you deliver work. And it's been a revelation, like putting this kind of minimum viable product out in the market, because that's all it is at the moment is, you know, it's definitely not the beautiful packaging that I would love it to be eventually. But I just thought I'm just going to do this short run. I'm going to put volume one out there and get feedback and see if it even has a market. And it's been extraordinary. Actually, oh, just, congratulations. thank you. I was listening to a podcast review of it last night. And these two women like cried as they were Oh. As they're explaining how much it impacted them to use it j- just for a week. Oh, and wow. yeah, so it's like it, I'm really kind of buoyed and excited to build it into something that maybe comes in different formats and can be integrated with a more um, contemporary kind of productivity practice, but really brings that mindfulness into the workplace because I think we've, we've seen mindfulness and meditation become part of mainstream culture but really that's kind of outside of the workplace. And Mm. this is not about going and sitting in a meditation room for 15 minutes in the middle of the day. This is about Mm. how you build practices into whether it's your strategy career or your creative career, or if you're an entrepreneur that just helps your brain to unlock better ways of approaching your work, more creative, more innovative, more imaginative ways of solving problems Mm. and yes it's been an interesting journey but yes side project passion project but fills me up a lot and the practice of it is definitely a part of my day-to-day. So I'm sure there's the same burning question in a lot of our listeners' minds as is in my mind, which leads us to the next segment, which is called NATA. And one of the things that, because you have such an active brain that's always keen to learn and seek out new opportunities to push yourself and never being happy to, you know, not solve a problem that you've identified, do you find productivity pressure to turn everything into something? Now having a side hustle on top of a very high-flying job, like where is the time and where is the time for your brain not to focus on anything productive? And, you know, I feel a lot of pressure to use every minute to create good learning or self-development and I've had to really let go of that because it just burns me out. So how do you navigate that? Yeah, I get asked this question a lot. and (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) I think it's because from an outside looking in, it feels like there is a lot going on and i'm i'm not saying that there isn't but i think there can be this misperception that i'm in action all of the time on all of these things at the same time that's just not true and i think also i have learned to take the pressure off of myself last year i do an annual mantra and last year my annual mantra was to follow my heart and 
that was like a total revelation to me. Like last year was like a game changer because I really had, I trained myself to get out of my head and listen to my heart. And I think when you stay in your head all of the time, being productive is the the game and it's the way your dopamine gets released because it's achievement oriented and that can just be the feeling that you chase and it can get really addictive. And when I shifted gears and I was like, I'm going to be really conscious of when I get into those modes, I'm going to stop. I'm going to get into my body. I'm going to listen to what my heart is feeling. Mm. And then I'm going to make a decision that like was, I don't know, like I can't even explain it in words. It's completely changed the way I go about these things. Taking the pressure off myself to achieve, achieve, achieve all of these things. I don't have as many deadlines set for myself on the mindful series, for example. Mm. I am very happy just to do one thing a day that is going to have an impact. And that might be as simple as doing an Instagram post, or it might be updating the website or launching a podcast or sending a, a freebie out to someone who I think I'd love to collaborate with and I want their feedback. One thing a day, that's 365 things a year that I get done, but it's not this huge task list. And I think what that allows me to do is to get to the big things and not, and shy away from the busy work. <laughs> Cause I think there's so, so much that we put onto our lists that is just productivity for productivity's sake. Absolutely. That I think has been pretty transformative and that I decide what those things are by listening to my heart, not my head. Mm. The flip side is of course, yes, there are days where I like fall in a hole and I'm exhausted and I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you to admit that they happen because that makes me feel so much better. No, of course it happens. But, you know, they happen when I have not listened. Mm. Like I've gone a couple of days and not listened to my heart or not listened to my body and I haven't eaten well or I skipped meditation or, you know, all of the things that you know are the things that balance the yin with the yang. Mm. And then all of a sudden, yeah, it becomes too much. And you have to have a little retreat day or as I call them, the cocoon day where I just regenerate. Yes, cocoon day. <laughs> I have those. <laughs> I actually have, and this is a really big thing in my own similar path, um, you know, to these same revelations was last Christmas, my fiance Nick actually bought me a day bed egg chair thing that physically looks like a cocoon. So psychologically, you know, I've never taken my laptop in there because it's my cocoon. So I literally go into like a full cocoon. <laughs> oh, dream. That is amazing. Well, you know, whatever tricks your brain, everything you're saying confirms so much that I've been coming to realize, you know, myself. And often our biggest fight is with our own brains. The brain and the heart want different things. So you don't realize you're getting conflicting messages. And then that makes it really hard to listen to yourself. You know, you get told, listen to your body, listen to what it's telling you. But sometimes it's telling you different things. Your brain doesn't want to stop, but your body needs to. So sometimes you have to tune into a different place and you might not want to stop, but you have to. Yeah. I was at an event recently that was this whole discussion was kind of transformed for me because this guy described his mind chatter as a third party. Like he gives it a name. He called her Becky. <laughs> and it was like, he said, you know, you think it's you because your thoughts are in your voice, right? So you think, oh, that's, that's me. But he's like, your mind is not you. And you can debate with your mind. You can tell your mind that it's wrong. You, and he's like, I literally will stop in the middle of the street and be like, what the hell did you just say? <laughs> and I just was like, oh, my gosh, like thinking about your mind chatter as being this third party, it makes us all sound a little bit cray. Which we but are. it's kind of amazing when you, when you make that switch and go, I don't have to listen to you. Yeah. I found that too. I used to think I'm a crazy person. I talk to myself so much. And then I thought, wait, is it myself or is it a weird brain critter? <laughs> I think it's a productivity critter that just wants all the A-type things. And I really do have to fight it all the time. Dopamine. Yeah, I have to fight it all mm -hmm. the time. Oh, that, that dopamine release when you check something off your list, like that is like a real drug. 
It really is. <laughs> I would prefer serotonin, so that's what I'm trying to channel. Oh, amazing. <laughs> so another big thing that is a huge theme for this podcast is self-doubt and, you know, imposter syndrome or, again, that endless internal chatter of am I good enough, do I have enough experience? And it's so natural but also the most destructive human tendency because, you know, if you can't acknowledge that it's just a protective mechanism and move past it, it actually stops a lot of people taking action on things that they are more than capable of doing and might have enormous talent in and they miss out on a whole life of fulfillment. So how has that manifested itself through your career, particularly as you moved countries, but also being handpicked by, you know, these enormous well-respected entities and people? Have you ever experienced that? Oh, Hell yes. I mean, (laughs) I think anyone who says they don't experience this is a liar, male or female. So I just think it's it's a natural part of having this third party in our heads. And um, (laughs) I think it's definitely something I have found ways to overcome. So I don't think it's as much anymore. Early in my career, oh my God, yes. It was definitely something that was constant. I grew really quickly in my career when I first joined Channel 10, when I worked there when I was like 24. I was the youngest female in the leadership role that I was in. And I was the one of the first people that had been hired outside for this role rather than an internal recruit. And so I had enormous imposter syndrome. I had people that were working for me that were older than me, I had someone working for me who wanted my job, so thought I was just the worst person ever. There were so many times where I was like, I can't do this. I have to fake it. (laughs) And the whole fake it till you make it thing, it's real. It's real. (laughs) It's so real. And it's okay that you need to do that. I think particularly early in your in your career, but I think when you are faking it to your maker, it's fine to a point. I think you do have to find those people, and I have always managed to find those people who I can be super real with and be like, I don't know how to do this. Can you please explain this, 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 and this to me? I've always somehow managed to find whether you call them mentors or coaches or allies or whatever you want to call them. I have sought those people out, and I have like little sidebar conversations when I'm feeling that. And that got me through very early in my career. I think now it manifests very differently. I don't know. There's something about being in your 40s as a woman where you just kind of give yourself some slack. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) There is definitely a change in the way that I show up. And I'm very clear now, I think, on the value that I bring to the table. And it's more to do with how I grow a team and how much I care about my team than it is about the output of the work. That I think would be the legacy that I want to leave any company that I um, I am at. So that's that's guided me and I think that came much more easily to me after I became a parent. Yeah. The, the parallels between how I have sought to raise my son and grow him to fulfill his potential is very similar to the way that I think people in an organization want to be treated, not as like a parent child, but just nurtured and heard and understood and feel like they are important and cared about. And that I think is, uh, it just gives you a, a different kind of purpose, I think, rather than, oh, I'm being judged on my output. And if I don't know how to do that output, then I am an imposter. Mm. I think I know I can be a super loving, caring human being to other human beings and I can can help them to grow their careers just by caring enough to listen to what they want and then helping them to get the right exposure or the right learning. That is something that everybody can do. And I think as I've really stepped into that role in my career, I have lost a lot of the fear of being found out. (laughs) I'm so glad to know that it does happen eventually. Oh, it does. Yeah. All right. Well, the last segment is called Playtier. And because, you know, you do have such an exciting career, I can imagine that this bit kind of gets skipped sometimes. But I love this part the most because it's when you find out about the real person behind the job. And I think, you know, we get very, very tied up in what we do and what we've achieved and what our output is and forget to find out just about the people who are around us as people and not defined by what their jobs are. So in between all the amazing things you've got going on, is there 
any time left for you to do anything that's separate to work or to a project? And what do you do just for fun? What makes you yay? Puzzles. I know that you love hip hop, which is so cool. <laughs> yes. That um, I was late to the game on hip hop, I've got to say. Um, one of my best friends was, you know, late 90s trying to get me to listen to stuff. And I was like, no. Um, but, <laughs> but I now have like an incredible appreciation for the musicality and the the intent and the messaging in a lot of amazing hip hop that, I don't know, it resonates with me differently now. I don't think I was like uh, open to that when I was younger for whatever reason. But yeah, hip hop combined with yoga is also awesome. There's actually a great studio in Melbourne that I miss incredibly. I haven't really found a similar one here. Yoga 213? Yes, the best. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> they're amazing. Just the best. <laughs> I'm surprised there's nothing in New York like that. I would have thought it came from uh, there. I think it actually originated in LA, which is where ah. flow hip hop was the best. Um, but um, right. <laughs> I also think here there's a level of um, competitiveness in yoga in New York, which is not like anywhere else. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> there's like a yoga hip hop studio, but it's it's really dark and sweaty, like it's a hot yoga as well as being hip hop. And the level of competitiveness that I feel in this room is like a little off-putting. So I actually go to Humming Puppy now. Oh, I love yeah, that Yeah, they're they've just opened, well, a little while ago, opened in New York and I love them. So yeah, yoga meditation films I am like I love films I'm a marvel geek oh we were watching Punisher last night yeah, on Netflix. just <laughs> lo- and it's something that my son and I love to do together as well as going to the cinema mm. and I have actually over the break refound my love of puzzles oh. I feel like I need a puzzle room in my house <laughs> <laughs> we have one as of like last November one of my big productivity breakers was a thousand piece puzzles and I've done three. There's no not enough room for them. Like, what do you do with them after oh, you've I know. done them? Please don't ever be one of those people that, like, glues them to something and then frames oh, them. <laughs> I thought about it. I actually thought about it. <laughs> I just, like, broke it down again. But I think also I am – I love to read, although – I must admit I'm more into audio books now than I am books books. I have tons of books around me because I love the feeling of books, but mm-hmm. the way that I put cram them into my life is audio books and podcasts. I have a newfound appreciation of podcasts. I think they're the main things. Walks in nature. Oh my gosh. That is the thing that I don't get enough of in New York. I have moved closer to the mm. park now, so it is more often um, and I have a dog so oh. she loves me when I take her to the park they're so good for mental health yeah there's just something about yeah my dog and walking in nature that is so restorative and takes me just to a totally different vibe so they would be the things that I actively seek out so nice and just to finish up one of my favorite questions is the three interesting things about you that don't usually come up in conversation so give us three I think I've already outed you with the hip-hop three things about me I think well I I got my first tattoo last year wow amazing yes my son's name and a hummingbird which is my spirit animal. Oh, that's beautiful. I think also just that I am like a voracious thrower outer. I, <laughs> I Is that the technical I word? <laughs> I, I need to come up with a better one. Maybe I just call myself Marie Kondo, but <laughs> I have a, a it's not a minimalism thing at all. I just think that things are in your life for a period of time and once I start feeling clutter, I just want to get rid of it. And I think that is also helped by the fact that um, the other thing is I'm a, I'm such a nomad. I have not only just moved cities, within those cities I move every other year. Really? And wow. Yeah. I don't – I've always rented. I do not own property. I have some weird allergy to owning property, I think, because it <laughs> feels like I'd like maybe tied down. But I am obsessed with travel and I like to mix up my environment as much as possible the other thing I think is that I've been sober since April of 2018. And Congratulations. that was, thank you. I it was a conscious choice. I went to this sober curious event and I, I'm not a big drinker at all. I was maybe having like two glasses of wine every couple of weeks, but oh. I went to this sober curious event and 
was like, I don't know why I drink anymore. Like it doesn't give me joy. I feel terrible afterwards. And there's this whole community of people. So I've thrown myself into that as I've done many times before. I have this weird thing where I'll be like, oh, vegetarianism, what's that like? I'm going to try it. And then like 15 years later, I'm still a vegetarian. Uh, (laughs) I don't know how long this sober curious thing is going to last, but for now it's been since April and I uh, don't miss it and really still enjoy myself when I'm out with my friends. So they would probably be the things that don't necessarily always come up in conversation. Oh, they were fascinating. (laughs) But that doesn't surprise me at all since you are such a fascinating mind and doesn't surprise me either that you just try completely new things just to see what happens. Complete overhaul. <laughs> Maybe it's the uh, behavioral psychologist in me or the anthropologist in me. I just love like speaking to human beings about why they make the decisions that they make. Mm. And yeah, start. I did that with vegetarianism and ended up converting me. And then I started doing that with this sober curious thing. And it's been so interesting listening to people's stories about why they decided to give up booze. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I haven't had a drink in seven years. Amazing. Sober buddies together. Yeah. And it also just makes you realize you have to have amazing personal skills and no qualms about just being the awkward only sober person in the room and still have a lot of fun. It was actually kind of a great social experiment and develops amazing parts of yourself so that you don't rely on a little wine to get you through awkward situations. You have to do that yourself. Yeah, and I take my hat off to you doing that in Australia as well because the drinking culture in Australia is legitimately more intense than it is here. Really? Oh, yeah. There is definitely an acceptance of any life choice that you make in New York no matter how random or weird that it is, that you don't necessarily, it doesn't, like people will be like, oh, do you want to drink? And you say no. And they're like, okay, cool. And they just move on. Yeah, there's no, why? (laughs) Are you pregnant? Like how far along are you? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Oh, all right. And the last question, since I love motivational quotes so much, is what is your favorite motivational quote? Ah, well, it's been on my Facebook page for a very long time now um, and it hasn't wavered. So I'm going to go with this one. I don't even know who said it. But it's life is change, growth is optional, choose wisely. That's amazing. I love that one. Yeah. Oh, I'm obsessed with quotes and I haven't heard that one oh, before. Good. So that's a new one. Glad Yay. I can be unique. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your incredible story and being so articulate and eloquent and open. And I just want to be you. I'll stop it. <laughs> this was amazing. Thank you so much for joining, Justine. Thank you so much for having me. This has been awesome. Oh, I loved hearing Justine's experiences as both a business owner and an executive within a business. It's so thought-provoking and interesting. If you like this episode, please keep sharing on socials and tagging me so I know what you think. The feedback is so appreciated. So thank you so much. And if you do have any suggestions, please don't hesitate to send me a DM on Instagram at spoonful underscore of underscore Sarah, or just shoot me an email at smile at spoonfulofsarah.com because I love hearing what you want, what you think, what you suggest I change, what you think I should do differently. And of course, if you haven't already, please don't forget to actually hit the subscribe button so you can get new episodes as soon as they come out. And I would so love it if you could spread the word and encourage others to subscribe too for their dose of yay. Hope you're having an amazing week and seizing your yay.